0: Now, this morning I'm preaching a message that I've entitled Worship Together. And you may have noticed that theme in Daryl's prayer time. Worship Together. Now, if you were with us last week, or perhaps you weren't, let me tell you where we were last week. The title of last week's sermon was Life Together. And the focus of that passage was really how we, as a body of believers, how the church in Thessalonica, as a body of believers, did life together. What did their interaction, what did their relationships, what did their community look like, and what should ours look like? And just by way of reminder, let's review really what that uh, section, verses 12 through 15, taught us. Verses 12 through 13 or 15 taught us how the elders in the church are to relate to church members, how church members are to relate to the elders in the congregation, and then also how church members relate to each other. Or we could put it another way, the sheep the the under shepherd's responsibility to look at the next slide there rod the under shepherd's responsibility to the sheep the sheep's responsibility to the under shepherd's god has given them and the sheep's responsibility to each other in other words the last section we looked at had to do with our horizontal relationships how we relate to one another well the section we're going to look at today has to do with our vertical relationship how we as a body Relate to God. Now, as we read our focal text in just a moment, you'll discover that what it really is it's, it's a collection of these short phrases, these little snippets of command, of instruction, and it's a section that probably many of you are familiar with and have read and studied before. And for sure, these are things that we can apply individually in our lives. But I believe after studying and preparing this week, Here is really, I think, the intention of Paul's instruction here. And that is how we employ these instructions together. And especially in this event we're participating in right now, this worship gathering. You know, this is when we have the most people on campus at one time, right now. This is where we spend the bulk of our resources as far as staff and energy and time and effort. Is this hour and 15 minutes we share together right here well, how should this hour and 15 minutes look? What should it look like? And so I'm gonna take this section that we're gonna to study today and, and make particular application to uh, this worship gathering, this event we're a part of right at this moment. And the reason I'm drawing there, and I'm not gonna be dogmatic about this, but I think this is likely the application Paul had in mind, and there's really a few reasons. One, it doesn't make sense that in the last uh, section that Paul would have been talking about our corporate life together, and then all of a sudden make a hard left turn and say, okay, now just as individuals, y'all do this. It seems within the context that he'd be talking about how we do this corporately together. Further, I think this is a corporate instruction and exhortation because all the verbs in the text we're going to read are in the plural. Further, the personal pronoun that's used is in the plural in these short verses. But then finally, I think this is really uh, the reason of Paul's intention here is because this passage weaves together some instructions we see in some parallel passages that particularly instruct us how we are to conduct this corporate worship service, our worship gathering on the Lord's Day. So let me show you a couple of examples, and we'll see this as we look at the focal text as well. In Ephesians 5, uh, the Word of God says this, "...and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, Some of the themes we'll see in just a moment as we read our focal text, which are highlighted in Ephesians 5 as he talks about the work of the Spirit in our lives. He talks about giving thanks. He talks about abstaining from evil things like getting drunk, which is debauchery. And then there's the idea of submitting to one another, which is this horizontal relationships we considered last week. So again, that's all within the context of our corporate worship service singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Here's another one. This is just one more. Colossians chapter 3. The Bible says, "...and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom." Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So some of the same themes we'll read about in just a moment are the thankfulness we are to have in our hearts towards God. Uh, He talks about the public instruction, the teaching and the preaching of the word of God that happens in this corporate worship gathering. He starts off by talking about the peace of Christ ruling in our body life together so again, some of the same themes and ideas are woven together around the idea of our corporate worship service now again i 'm not going to be dogmatic, and if you disagree with me, these are supposed to be individual instructions you're, you're allowed to be wrong on this one but um i'm only kidding it's okay i 'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I do believe this is a very applicable uh, inference that paul's making here to our corporate worship gathering, so that's what we 're going to consider it and how we 're going to look at it. Now, if you'll recall from last week, before we read the text, I said, I want you to take your fingers out. I want you to count how many individual direct instructions, how many directives are given in the text. Do You remember how many we came up with last week? 10. Good job, Daryl. I saw those two hands in the back. 10. So we're going to read this text. Take your fingers out. You won't need your toes today. Take out your fingers and count how many specific directives are given in this short passage as we read. This is God's word, hear it. The Bible says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What did you come up with? I'm giving you the answer. I'm a good teacher, right? Eight. Eight specific instructions in this short short passes. Now, you've probably heard somebody say, even me, the Christian life is not about a set of rules. You ever heard that before? I've said it. I've said to you before from this pulpit, the Christian life is not about our do's and don'ts. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done, right? We rejoice today in the work of Jesus not what we can do to be accepted, to be forgiven, to be received by God. It's only in what Christ has done. However, and this is a big however, there are instructions in the New Testament. Notice I didn't say but. There are instructions how we should live our lives in obedience to the commands of Christ, how we should live our lives in obedience to what God calls us to be and who God calls us to be. In other words, he calls us To holiness. Just this week, someone told me in my office, doesn't God want me to be happy? I said, no. God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be holy. And this is our walk in holiness as we look to this passage. Now, this section could be covered, these eight directives could be covered in eight individual sermons. And some pastors and preachers I respect and love did just that so, but we're going to look at all eight in one message and really under three headings i'm going to group these the first thing is this number one is we consider our worship service together i want us to think about the godward focus of our worship the godward focus of our worship i think we would all agree the focus of our worship services should be godward and not manward would you agree with that that our worship services should be focused on God. But unfortunately, especially in the modern church era, most of the planning, most of the preparing, most of the programming, and most of the performing has in mind the consumer of people. What are people going to think about it? How are people going to enjoy it? Churches, by and large, have taken on this business mentality. The customer is always right. And so they design their services for the customer. People go to church and say, I go to church to be inspired, or worse, to be entertained. I can't tell you how many times I've had people even come to our church and say, yeah, we left this church because we just weren't getting anything out of it. I'm always a little wary of that. It ain't about you. We are customer-focused so long as we remember There's only one customer, God Almighty. We are consumer-minded, and we really want to concern ourselves and focus ourselves on consumerism, so long as we remember there's only one consumer of our worship. It's God Almighty. He is the focus of our worship. Do you see how dangerous this man-centered mindset of corporate worship can be? All of a sudden, we start thinking that it's all about us, the comfort of the temperature, the types of songs we sing, Friends, when we design these worship services each week, we have God in mind primarily, worshiping him. Well, Paul gives us really three ways in which our worship gathering together can be Godward focused. First of all, he tells us there should be this perpetual rejoicing, perpetual rejoicing. He says right at the beginning, rejoice always. Now, we could take this instruction to rejoice always really as an overarching uh, command for the rest of the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, but really I think it's even a specific command with regard to our gathering together. When we come together, we're coming together for the express purpose of rejoicing. Now, the verb form, firm is, form is rejoice. The noun form is joy. Joy should be on our hearts. We should rejoice in God as we come together. And I want you to think about particularly this church in Thessalonica. They could rejoice always, even in the midst of what we've seen through this study, dire hostility, intense persecution, abandonment by their friends and their family because of their faith in Christ, forsaken by their community. And in that circumstance in that situation of devastation, of pain, of heartbreak, Paul says, rejoice, always rejoice. Because here's the deal. It's really easy to rejoice when everything's going great. Would you agree with that? When things are going great, when there's no trials and there's no difficulties, when the kids are behaving, it's really easy to rejoice. There's a very important event that took place a month ago that most of you had no idea took place. It was the U.S. Olympic team wrestling trials. Very important event in our nation as a wrestling fan. Now, you need to know that in the sport of wrestling, the Olympics is the apex, the pinnacle of our sport. There's no professional wrestling. I know they say there is, it ain't professional wrestling. It's not like basketball or baseball or tennis or these other Olympic sports. The Olympics is the apex, it only happens once every four years. So here's what happens in order to get on the Olympic team. There are all these pre-qualifying tournaments throughout the year that hundreds and hundreds of elite athletes participate in, just so they can go to the Olympic trials. And there's 10 people in each weight class, there's only six weight classes in freestyle wrestling. So 60 athletes show up at this event, and the only people that make the team are the champions of each bracket. Only six members of the U.S. wrestling freestyle team. So the final spot was for the heavyweight position. You had the, uh, on the left there, Nick Wisdowski. He's from North Carolina State, 28 years old, two-time world bronze medalist, Pan Am Games champion. He's the favorite. And on the right there, you see this fellow by the name of Gable Stevenson. He's a 20-year-old sophomore at the University of Minnesota. They both made it to the finals match of the U.S. Olympic team trials. And the underdog, Gable Stevenson, beat him 10 to 0. Dominate him. He is now on the U.S. Olympic team, the apex of our sport. Now, here's the thing. His coach told him all kinds of things to do during the tournament. What What to do, how to defend, how to wrestle. You know what he did not have to tell him to do? Rejoice after you made the team. In fact, look what he did. He did a round-off to a backflip after he won that match. 265 pounds in the air. That's amazing. It is amazing. It's easy to rejoice when everything's going your way. Nick Wisdowski, 28 years old, probably his last chance to make an Olympic team. He had to be told, rejoice always. The church in Thessalonica, they're losing They're going through difficulties and hardship. And Paul has to tell them, rejoice always. Friends, this last year has been so difficult for so many. The mental state of so many has been devastating. But Paul comes into this crisis moment and says, you know what the best medicine is? Rejoice. Have joy in God because of what he has done. Now, there's hundreds of reasons I could rejoice or rehearse why we can be a rejoicing, joyful people. I just want to show you five real quickly from the scripture. Here's some reasons to rejoice. First of all, we can rejoice in the person of God. We can have joy simply because God is God, because of his character, because of his nature, because of his divine attributes, which make God. God. Notice how the psalmist put it. He says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I'm helped. My heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The psalmist's heart, even in difficulties, even in crisis, says I can exalt in God. Here's another reason we have to rejoice, not only the person of God, but the purchase of Jesus Christ. Friends, salvation, being taken from death to life, being taken from darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, is a reason to rejoice. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What's the response? And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the purchase of Jesus. We rejoice in the person of God. We rejoice in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have not been left as orphans. We have not been left out there with no one to guide us, to lead us, to comfort us, to convict us. We have the true source of all joy, the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. Notice how Romans 14 puts it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We have a reason to rejoice because of the promise of heaven, because of the promise of eternity. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. And, friend, we need to remind ourselves of that every day. As the difficulties and the hardships and the, the just awful news headlines come across our phones and our screens, Jesus is coming back. Everything that is wrong will be made right. We have a reason to hope. The psalmist says, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And friend, here's the fifth reason. I could give you hundreds why we have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice because of the privilege of family. We say this every week. Welcome home. Look around this room. There's a couple hundred reasons why you can't rejoice. Because God's given you a family of faith to walk this life with. Earlier in this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul shared with the church just how much joy they brought to his heart. He said, for what Thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? So friends, when we come together to worship each week, no matter what your week has been like, and I know you have had some doozies of weeks, we have reasons to rejoice. He says rejoice always. There's this perpetual rejoicing, but also when we have this Godward focus in worship, we do so through permanent prayer. Through permanent prayer. He says simply pray without ceasing, and this is really the ultimate in having a Godward focus. Prayer is talking to God, communing with God, and he says you do this without ceasing. You do it permanently, and so we are from the time we enter this place at 1045 till the time we dismiss in an attitude of prayer. Now, prayer can take on different modes and forms. Prayer can be praise. Sometimes I sing when I pray. When we recite the scripture that's on the screen in our responsive readings of the Bible, that's in an attitude of prayer. Prayer. When I preach the word or one of our other elders preaches the word, it's through an attitude of prayer that God is speaking to us. Next Sunday will be our monthly communion celebration as we take the Lord's meal that he's instituted for us. It's an attitude of prayer as we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus in his body and in his blood. So we come together in prayer. And in fact, we have at the very central component of our worship gathering a prayer time. One of our elders, Daryl, led us in praying and focusing on prayer together today. Oh, the early church had a focus on prayer as they gathered together. You see in Acts uh, chapter 1, the history book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, as they gathered together there, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to what? To prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his, Jesus's, brothers. And then in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, chapter two, the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost, there were four things they devoted themselves to. Notice one of them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayer. So prayer is especially an act of Godward worship for believers, for the Thessalonian believers, and for the Lookout Valley believers, especially through significant Significant difficulties through severe hardships, through troubling trials, because when we do that, when we pray, we are recognizing and we are affirming our complete inability and God's total capability. that's what we're doing. We 're confessing we can't change a thing. we're dependent. On you, So we come together with this Godward focus. We do so with perpetual rejoicing, with permanent prayer, and thirdly, with persistent thanksgiving. He says give thanks when in all circumstances. It's a persistent thanksgiving. And here's the deal. Being thankful doesn't come naturally. We have to teach our children to say thank you, right? Yesterday, my granddaughter, Demi, had her two-year-old birthday party. And every time she opened one of the gifts from those who brought her presents, what did her mommy Ashley have to say? Say thank you, Demi. Thank you, Demi. No, no. Say thank you, Papa. Maybe I say thank you, Papa. So she would say thank you, but she has to be trained to say thank you. We in our natural state are not naturally grateful. We're not naturally thankful. We're selfish and self-centered. The Bible bears this out. In Romans 1, it says, For although they, that's unbelievers, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Why? But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. But as he has given us a new heart, he's exchanged our stony heart to a malleable heart of flesh, we learn to be a thankful people. And if there's anybody on the planet that ought to be thankful people, isn't it we who have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ? We ought to be a thankful people. People. And even when we consider our dire condition that we were in, in our lostness, in our state of rebellion against God, and we think of the lengths through which God Almighty went to save us, we ought to be thankful. And thanksgiving occurs, listen, it's verbal. Demi could have said yesterday, I'm thankful in my heart. It's not thanksgiving until it's expressed thank you. Some of you parents have learned this trick with your children. When they forget to say thank you, you simply say, you're welcome. Oh, thank you. Because we want it to be expressed, right? We verbalize our things. When you come into this place and we give thanksgiving to God, it's expressive. We do it with our lips when we sing and we pray. Again, as I rehearsed earlier with you guys, not because the preacher says something you like, but because the word of God is true, you can say amen. That's a form of thanksgiving to God for this profound truth that he has given to us. There's so many things that can be uttered from our lips. Would you agree with me? So many things that can come out of our mouths. In fact, notice how Paul put in Ephesians 5. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We have a thankful heart, but it must be expressed with our mouths. It comes from our lips. And this very fact that Paul has to say, give thanks in all circumstances, reminds us there are times and there are events in which it is difficult to say thank you, God. But he concludes this whole section here, this first Godward-focused section, by giving us really the motivation for doing doing so. He says, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That doesn't just apply to thanksgiving. It applies to the rejoicing, and it applies applies to the praying. There are many times people come to me and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I don't know God's will for my life, as if I do. (laughs) I can tell you, I do do know this is God's will for your life. Rejoice, pray, and verbalize your thanksgiving to God as we worship together. That's the Godward focus of our worship as a spiritual family of faith. That leads to the second thing to notice from our passage. Number two, the growth in truth by our worship. Now, though the entire focus of our worship is Godward, he's the consumer, he's the customer, not us, God, in his grace and in his mercy, does something when we do that. When we are focused towards God in our corporate worship gathering together, he works this growing in grace in us. He grows us. He brings about a spiritual maturation in our lives. And God uses our worship together as a means of shaping us, as a means of forming us into the image of Jesus. It's not the only means, but it is a primary means. Why? Because we're singing the truth. We're praying the truth. We're proclaiming the truth. We're preaching the truth. And as a result, we are transformed. Friends, this is why it is so important that you do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. I've said it before, but it certainly bears repeating. Chronic church absenteeism is either, number one, an indication of sin or number 2 an invitation to sin. Chronic church absenteeism is either an indication of sin in someone's life I ain't going to church or it's an invitation to sin. When we come together in worship, God does this maturing, this growing. And there are a couple realities about this engagement in worship and the growth God does that I want to point out. First of all, when we come together, we come with expectation. Now, even though this whole service is Godward, we come with a sense of expectancy. We come anticipating, God, you're going to do something in me today. God, you're going to work in my life today. As I give you worship, as I direct everything, not to me, but to you, you're going to do something in my life. And, And I come around this expectation with these two phrases in verse 19 and 20. He says this, do not quench the spirit Do not despise prophecies. So here's a couple of his don'ts. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. This concept of quenching the spirit. What does that mean? Quench literally means to put out a fire. To douse something that is burning with water. You put it out. Now often in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is described in these words of fire. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing, said this, I'm baptizing you in water, but there's one coming greater than me. When he baptizes you, he's going to baptize you with fire. That's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when that promise came to be on the church that was gathered in the upper room, the Holy Spirit descended how? In a tongue of fire. The Holy Spirit is fire. Anybody want the fire to fall in your life? The command here is do not quench The Spirit, don't douse him with water. Now, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. And as God, he possesses all the divine qualities and attributes of God, one of those being omnipotent. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful. Friend, if you wanted to stop the Spirit's work, you couldn't stop it. He's all-powerful. So what does he mean by quenching the Spirit? Here's what I believe he's talking about, making your wood wet. Making your wood wet. Having a a heart condition that is so saturated with the moisture of this world and of selfishness that you are not prepared for the Spirit and His fire to move in your life. Do not quench the Spirit. How do we do that? All kinds of things. Continual, unconfessed sin quenches the Spirit, makes our wood wet distractions that take away our focus, misprioritizing things in our lives, thinking this is of utmost value to me, broken relationships, harboring bitterness and unforgiveness over a wrong suffered. Yes, the wrong is real, but as long as you harbor that unforgiveness, you're making your wood wet. And I would say, neglecting to prepare ourselves as we come into this space together is quenching the work of the Spirit. Just do some personal examination right now. What preparation did you go through personally before you came to worship today? What did you do to prepare some kindling in your heart that the Holy Spirit could fall in fire and breathe on those smoldering embers? Did you prepare yourself today? But a massive and huge way we quench the Spirit's work in our lives is the very next phrase in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. This word despise here means to look down upon or to treat with contempt or consider as insignificant or as nothing. The, what are the prophecies he's referring to here? Some translations say prophetic utterances. I think pastor and Bible commentator Dr. John MacArthur is helpful here, and he's succinct in this description, and I'd point you to it. Look on the screen. He writes in his commentary, In the New Testament, prophetic utterances can refer either to spoken words or written words. The verb form means to speak or proclaim publicly. Thus, the gift of prophecy is the spirit-endowed skill of publicly proclaiming God's Word, New Testament prophets sometimes delivered a brand new revelation directly from God. At other times, they merely reiterated a divine proclamation that was already recorded. So this prophetic utterance that he's talking about here, this prophecy that he says, don't despise these, that's the public proclamation of the word. That's what's happening right now. You need to think of prophecy not as foretelling the future, but simply forthtelling the truth. Do not despise the preaching of the word. Do not despise the prophetic utterances. How do we do that? Well, there's all kinds of ways that we do that. But one phenomenon that has really developed since I've been your pastor, which was almost 14 years ago, is a very new phenomenon in church history. You know what it is? Go to the next slide. Look at Joe right there. I'm sorry I gave him that name. Billy Bob, we'll call him Billy Bob. Right? This is how you can despise prophecies. How you can despise the preaching of the word. The first smartphone I ever saw was right here. Somebody, hey, look at this thing called an iPhone. I saw it. And I was like, wow, you can zoom in on pictures and stuff. What is amazing? It was about 12 years ago. When we open our cell phones during the proclamation of the word and play Candy Crush, scroll our Facebook feed, look up recipes on allrecipes.com, it happens. (laughs) We're despising the prophetic utterances. Now, you may be saying, well, I can multitask. I have three words for you. No, you can't in a recent study done among university students, across 26 states, they compared students who came to class and took their cellular device and put it in their backpack versus students who were actively engaged on their cell phone during class. Here's the results. Of those who put their phones away during class, they recorded 62% more information on their notes. But here's where the really punch is. Their final letter grade, for those that put their cell phones away during class, they scored one and a half letter grades higher than those who were on their cell phones actively. So as college students, if you're making a C plus in a class, put your phone away, you'll make an A minus. This is the simple truth and the science behind it. You cannot listen to the sermon and look at Instagram at the same time. Now you may say, well, oh, I use my phone for my Bible. If you can overcome the temptation to swipe out of your Bible app and go open up Pinterest, you, all, by all means, use your Bible. If you don't think you can do it, just use the Pew Bible right in front of you. Do not despise the prophecies. I'm not saying that because I'm the preacher. I'm saying that because this is the Word of God. And this is a modern application for it. We come with expectation that God is going to speak through His Word, and that the Spirit is going to move in our hearts, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise property, prophecies. Come with this expectation. Many of you just put your phones away. Thank you. <laughs> Number two, leave with investigation. Leave with investigation. Again, we're talking about growth in the truth that happens from our time of worship together. That means, friends, on your own, when you leave this place, you do some personal study. You do some personal investigation. If something from the pulpit is not clear, I always say or I often say, my notes are here, first come, first serve. You grab them and you take them home. If you want an electronic copy, I'll email them to you. If I've if said something you disagree with, do some investigation. What did he say? Test everything. Don't take what I say uh, for granted. You go study it yourselves. In Acts chapter 17, in the beginning of that chapter, we find when the apostle Paul planted this church in Thessalonica, and he left Thessalonica under duress because the jealous Jews were bringing about all kinds of hostility upon him. He goes south from Thessalonica to the city of Berea. And notice how Luke, the author of Acts, records their reception of Paul and the missionary band. He says this, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Here's why. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul said this. He said, the Bible points to this Jesus as the fulfillment of all the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament. They went home. They checked it out for themselves. I encourage you. You do likewise. Be like the Bereans. Study it for yourselves. Examine the scripture. Test everything that comes from this pulpit. Bottom line, when we leave this place, we should be changed. We should be different from our time of worship together. Because, listen, this is not just about collecting information and making us a bunch of theological eggheads. This is about life change, and that really leads to the third and final thing I want us to see as we close. Number three, the goal for living from our worship. Now, what's the goal? What's the sanctifying work of the Spirit as we engaged with God in worship through our corporate time together. He says, we hold fast what is good and we abstain from every form of evil. This really is a confirmation of what I said earlier. Chronic church absenteeism is either an invitation to sin or an indication of sin. We come together in our worship. We engage with the Word. The Spirit does His work in our lives as we give our rejoicing and our thanksgiving and our prayers to God. And we leave this place changed. We hold fast to what is good and we abstain from every form of evil because we rehearse the things that we should celebrate and rejoice in those things and we give thanksgiving to those things and the Holy Spirit that enables us to identify good from evil and to cling to what is good and abstain from what is evil. You see, as we worship together weekly, God does this work in us so that we will love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. Yes, Jesus hates. He hates sin. He hates injustice. He hates cruelty to image bearers of God in the world. We love what Jesus loves, and we hate what Jesus hates. That's his work in us, and that's the beauty of worshiping together as a family of faith. In a spirit of prayer, we rejoice in God for who he is and what Christ has done, verbalizing our thanksgiving to him. We become more and more like Jesus. We grow in likeness to him, and here's what happens. As such, we make our message believable to a watching world. We make our message believable, credible to the watching world, and that leads to my last thought. We grow together on the Lord's Day in order to show the greatness of God, grow into the likeness of Jesus, and go in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together.